gritty people are just people who like figure out how to get it done. And actually on a more personal level, I recently had this conversation with some friends. If there is one characteristic that I wanted to instill or pass down to my kids, it's grit. Because I think it is so important, not just in business success, but really more importantly, personal life and personal life happiness. Hi, I'm Jubin, go-to-market partner at Kleiner Perkins, and this is GTMG, a show that interviews world-class revenue and go-to-market leaders to explore how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build incredible companies. Now let's get to the episode. LB, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jubin. Thrilled to be here. I get all these things started the exact same way. I read your background back to you. Tell me what I screw up, and we will use that as a launching pad to go from there. Perfect. Awesome. All right. You got your bachelor's in English and poli-sci from Colgate. Then you went to CEB. You spent two years at CEB. Then you went to LinkedIn. You spent seven years there, started as an AE, and then you got your first management gig about a year in, even less than that. Then you became the manager of the SDR team, 10 months of that. Then you became the sales manager. You did three years of that. Director for SMB, you did a year and a half of that. Then you were the director of new business acquisition in North America for a little over a year. Then you went to a startup called Intercom, was doing probably what, 25, 30 million in revenue, maybe a little bit more at the time. You spent four years there, VP of sales and support for two and a half, SVP of sales success and support for almost two years. So you had a good four, four and a half year run there. And as of a year ago, year and a half, maybe you are the chief revenue and success officer of Front. Almost nailed most of it. So I've been at Damn Front it. a little, it was pretty darn good. I've been at Front for about 10 months. 10 months. Now you could argue at the rate we're moving, it feels like a year and a half, but it's been 10 months. Days feel like weeks, weeks feel like months. Dan Shapiro, one of our previous guests introduced us. It's funny, you and I have a lot of overlap in our lives in very random ways. So Mamoon, my partner, was the Series A investor of Intercom. And then he was the Series A investor of Front at Social Capital, I think, I'm pretty sure. And then we obviously both know Ryan Longfield, yep. who was your peer at LinkedIn, Peter Kim, both of whom were on the podcast, who was your peer at LinkedIn, obviously Dan Shapiro. So anyway, LinkedIn lineage runs strong through this show, and it doesn't feel like an accident that you all are where you are. So we're thrilled to have you. Amazing. LinkedIn has been absolutely a career-defining decision for me to join the company, and I'm so grateful for my experience is there, and I think they've provided a lot of tailwinds to many of us, I and mean, it really speaks to not just the company, but really specifically the, the go-to market leadership and sales leadership there. I am absolutely pumped to talk shop with you. Before we get all the way into it, I have a couple questions about your background, and then we'll go from there. Question one, why would you leave LinkedIn? And I ask all the LinkedIn people this. It was a golden era of growth at that time. You were getting promoted every year, year and a half. You were working with obviously really smart people. They continued to give you more and more opportunities. How'd that go? Yeah, it was not an easy decision. LinkedIn is a hard company to leave, to your point. And I remember it being particularly emotional for me at the time because I really loved my team. And we were going through a phase of tremendous growth and reaccelerating the acquisition business in North America. I loved my manager. I loved my, my mentor and the entire leadership team. 
But ultimately, I had been working with my mentor, who was running the global field organization, sales, success, et cetera. And we'd really talked about the fact that I aspire to go in and really lead an organization. And so he actually worked really closely with me to evaluate the opportunity. He went as far as actually to interview the CEO. Your boss. My boss at Intercom so that he could advise just on the company and the leadership and the culture. What a stud. It's incredible. That really has stayed with me. Who is that, by the way? Just wondering. Mike Gamson. I just had breakfast with him the other day. Yeah, very tied into the all the folks you mentioned, uh, Dan, Peter, and, and Ryan. And I think a lot of us owe him quite a bit. It's really instilled in me, by the way, this sort of inspiration of now I'm at front. And one of the things that gets me up in the morning is the idea of building such an incredible business and revenue team and sort of leadership culture that front is able to provide the type of tailwinds that LinkedIn has for so many of us. And that truly folks who spend time at front, whether it's SDR, AE, AM, CSM, leadership roles like marketing, et cetera, yep. that we provide that type of career trajectory changing experience. And hopefully we see explosive growth and we have yep. a lot of opportunities internally for folks to continue to grow their career as I did for seven years at LinkedIn. But ultimately we wanna get people to where they wanna go even if it's outside of front and LinkedIn really embodies that spirit. Yeah, fair enough. Was there ever a point when you were doing SMB and SDR type leadership that you considered going up that vertical path? I remember when I was a BDR manager, I was really young and I really wanted to stay in management. And so I was telling my boss, I wanna be the director of BDRs. And he was like, no, you don't. And I'm like, yes, I do. And he's like, no, you don't, I promise. Like you don't, ultimately, if the type of leader that you wanna be is like a head of sales or something else, you need way more functional expertise in other areas of the go-to-market org. How'd you think about that? Maybe similar, maybe different. Yeah, so my career path was BDR. I actually started as an SDR. Then I was an AE. Then I went into SDR leadership, scaled that team, and then I moved into SMB. And then I, I did a couple of years as an enterprise frontline manager before moving into scaled SMB leadership and then ultimately leadership at LinkedIn across SMB mid-market and enterprise. And then obviously at Intercom and at Front, I run the gamut there. It's interesting. I've developed a lot of my more cross-functional or cross-team experience in head of roles and learning on the fly. So I think you can go either path. You can go more vertical or you can you know, spread out and go more horizontal. And I think you can learn those skills, whether it's front line or second line or head of capacities. But I definitely see the value, especially in a role like CRO, on that cross-functional experience. And certainly I think there's value to getting experience on the AE, the AM, and, and even on the success side earlier in your career because it just gives you credibility down the line and empathy for the, the struggles of those different roles. Totally agree. Okay, so a couple of things. So actually, first, I wanna characterize this company front, and then I wanna dive into some questions and comments that I have for you. Great. Social Capital and Mamoon led the Series A, Sequoia did the Series B. The Series C was actually led by a bunch of well-to-do business folks. Eric, CEO of Zoom, Frederick, co-founder of Okta, Jay from Atlassian, just like superstars, raised 138 million total, valued at around a billion, give or take. Some interesting stats that stood out, like made my eyeballs pop, that made it obvious why you joined this company. Number one, 72% Dow Mao, which is a very stupid acronym, but basically it means that 
of the seven, and maybe I'm wrong, but of the 72% of monthly active users, they're also daily active users. And so is that correct before I go on? I am not going to confirm any, okay. is that publicly available information? It is, it is okay. all public, Great. all public. Great. This is all, none of this came from inside baseball. This is all on the internet. Great, this will be a good test of mine, by the way. It, yeah, it is. Yeah, no, this is literally, I actually pinged my moon and it was too late. I didn't get a chance to get any inside baseball from him. So this is all on the interwebs. And anyway, those usage numbers, all it means is that they're leading indicators of the way that your end consumer is eating up your product. How often are they using it? How much are they using it? Yep. Some public comps for that are like WhatsApp has those numbers. Twitter has those numbers. Not even. Slack had those numbers. So you see these numbers generally in consumer-based, consumer-grade companies. And to see that in a business like this is amazing. The other interesting thing is that you have over 130% net retention. So that's one of my favorite numbers as a sales guy. And it also makes sense why you run revenue and success within your purview because a customer lands at 100K, next year you do your job, they're spending another 37K or whatever it is. So that's a beautiful business model and you just need to get your foot in the door yep. and then ultimately that business will expand. Is that all right-ish? Yeah, and what I'll share there is one of the things that I did, I did this at Intercom and I did it even more diligently joining Front was I ended up talking to as many customers as I could, both that the front leadership team introduced me to and second, as many as a back channel and the rabid fan base of front customers is really astounding. And I still, one of my favorite activities is to be able to connect with some of our newer customers and understand how their experience is going and the value they're seeing from the product even a couple months in. And it's a really fun way to start your day because there's a lot of positive sentiment out there on front. Second, one of the things that attracted me to joining Front was this opportunity to build a high-quality revenue machine at still a, a relatively early stage of the Front journey. And I think that when you have a company that's built on fast-growing but not strong gross revenue retention, net revenue retention type revenue, so not strong kind of LTV revenue, it catches up with you. And it's going to inhibit your growth when you're trying to cross 100 million, 200 million, et cetera. And so one of the things that I get very, very excited about and drew me to front was this opportunity to focus on high-quality revenue, put in the right aligned strategies early in the company to make sure that we were really setting ourselves up for the long run. Yep, that makes total sense. And could you spend 30 seconds for the audience saying what Front does? Yeah, so Front's mission started really as an opportunity to help people work happier. And it originated as a, can we reinvent email and take on disrupting Microsoft Outlook and, and Google's Gmail? And we've since really evolved to focusing on being a hub for customer communications. And so what that really means is that we look and act and feel a lot like an email client. And so we combine the simplicity of an email inbox, which your teammates are already used to as a UI, but behind the scenes, we're powering front with the automation workflows and insights of a CRM. And so what we allow your teams to do is really to collaborate behind the scenes in a very seamless way to get fast, credible answers back to your customers in a highly tailored way, even at scale. I have many questions for you on front, but before I go there, yeah. so I talked to folks that have worked with you in the past and there were some interesting things that came up that I wanted to just talk to you about. Is that okay? Yeah. All right. Now I'm curious. <laughs> All right. So this one from Ryan Longfield, current CRO of Gong. 
I told him I was doing this today and he was really excited. He's said he's known you since you guys were 20s, like in your 20s, like yeah. you grew up together basically. He has a funny story, by the way, of when I interviewed at LinkedIn and I showed up to the Mountain View campus in like a black suit, fresh off of management consulting sales. And he said he was almost a no higher on me for that reason. Because you were so- Buttoned up, you know? Oh. <laughs> I, I wasn't fitting the like tech sales jeans and a t-shirt. And, well, you know. it's, it's funny you say that because someone else that I talked to who you worked with at Intercom was like, she is always wearing the coolest shoes. She loves <laughs> shoes. So you've really come full circle. I've evolved. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. I always used to be that way too. We'll see what happens after COVID. But even when I walked into Kleiner, I'd come into the office every day in a blazer and they're like, dude, what are you doing? <laughs> and they're all in t-shirts. And obviously now I'm in a black t-shirt, really uh, assimilating here. But I was like, I feel good. I look good. I feel good. So anyway, we'll see. But maybe I'm evolving before your eyes here. Okay, so Ryan, he said she's always done things all the way. When she came to LinkedIn, ice shots at the holiday party. She's always in her work. When she was pregnant with Oscar, she ate everything in sight. She gained a lot of weight. Right after having him, she lost the weight insanely fast. She goes hard at every single thing that she puts her hands on. First of all, fair? <laughs> You're laughing. 100%. Fully accurate. <laughs> I still have like visual snapshots of that first <laughs> holiday party at LinkedIn. In my defense, I think I was 24. Yeah. But I shots were had. Dance floor was aggressively gotten after. And yeah, I am definitely big on go big or go home. And so for my first pregnancy, I'm, I'm actually pregnant right now, five months in, and I'm, I'm trying to do it a little healthier this time. But I did an all-in pregnancy. I gained over 70 pounds, and I wasn't worried that I would just knock it off with some good workouts and healthier eating on the back end. But I had a blast. I did a trail of treats and I had a great time. And baby came out big and just gained weight from there. So I was a 10 and a half pound baby. So people thought that my mother had twins. <laughs> okay, let me read you one more quote from Ryan. And then I want to ask you about it. And by the way, he obviously thinks so highly of you, given what he's saying here. He said, LB is bold and authentic. She shows up big and as herself always. How does she do that while many shrink back? She doesn't dance for people to gain their favor. And I really, really respect that. I want to start with the first quote. And these are so cool. It was really cool to just read that about you. Thank you, Ryan. Yeah, he's, he'll be listening. Where does this extreme nature come from? What are the logs that burn that fire? Someone I worked with at Intercom and, and have a great deal of respect for, Karen Peacock, had a quote that I'll probably butcher, but the essence is, your greatest strengths also show shadows of some of your weaknesses, or everything that's really great about you often has a small drawback on the yep. opportunity side. And so I would certainly say that that falls true here for me as well. But to go with the theme of playing to the strengths, I think a lot of this is nature. I think 70% of nature and 30% and maybe learned. And so I think even as a kid, I was always pretty gregarious, competitive. I played sports growing up. I played sports all through high school. I definitely always wanted to keep up with the boys. I was a total tomboy. And so early in childhood, I hung out a lot with my big brother and his friends. And so I kind of was always punching above my weight class to keep up. And so there's always just been an inner competitor, an inner desire to be able to hang within me. I think the authenticity piece is just so critical 
And I actually think that the way that the workforce has evolved in like the last five to 10 years, I mean, even going back to the commentary on what we are able to wear every day to the office versus like when I started my career in 2007, having to be more buttoned up and polished, I just think there's been a change for the positive around transparency and authenticity, really driven by the millennial generation. And then I think some of it has been learned. I think back to some of my earlier times at LinkedIn, I was actually the first female sales manager. And I was fairly young in my career, early in my career, compared to a lot of the folks I was sitting around the table with. And I've definitely had moments where I've had to like really reset and consciously gain confidence in a moment where it didn't come naturally to me. So, so some of it is definitely innate and wired in, and some of it has been learned and practiced and just reinforced mentally. Do you think the authenticity thing from the black outfit to the cool shoes, okay, does that come with success? Are you allowed to be more authentic when you are the CRO of the company? You know, it's a great question. I think I've adopted it early because I operated that way even as a fairly junior new manager at LinkedIn. I think I've certainly gotten bolder. (laughs) Some of that probably is correlating between career success, yes, but also, you know, I think as you you age out of your 20s and into your mid-30s, you just become more confident in your own skin. So I think some of it is probably just me or us growing up. And then some of it is probably a bit empowered by your position at the company. But I would say this has probably been an earlier strength of mine. And I certainly love when I see characters in my sales or success or marketing or go-to-market or just company-wide. I think it's great. And I think as long as people are figuring out ways to still be constructive and solution-oriented and appropriate, I think today's at least tech environment really is a great greenfield for the characters of the world. Yeah. I've shared this story in previous episodes, but as I was maturing through my career, I was definitely trying to be my boss, showing up as him when I was an AE in those meetings. And over time, that kind of bled into who do I want to be? And, and I started asking myself, how can I be authentic if I don't really know who I am? And so that started me down this kind of crazy path of meditation, therapy. I started asking a lot of people, paying people to like understand Jubin better. I realized how important it was for me to be myself because I thought what made me different is what makes me cool. And so I was trying to figure out like, what is that? And so anyway, I tried to go through this long journey of cultivating authenticity. Well, and actually, Jubin, that brings up a really interesting triggered thought for me, which is, I think actually one of the moments in my career that sort of reinforced this concept of authenticity and you being you is actually a good thing. I had a manager, Wade Burgess, who at the time was running the global LTS organization, so LinkedIn Talent Solutions, which is the largest business line. And we had this evening where we were all at a dinner and we went around (laughs) after several drinks and gave each other like one piece of constructive feedback and then one piece of really positive reinforcement. And one of the things he said on the positive side was, you bring this energy and you are you. You're not focused on trying to be Mike Gamson or Dan Shapiro or all these other leaders that, by the way, would be worthy aspirational folks. Yeah, of emulating, right. Of emulating, right? So I think to hear that at 27 or 28 probably has also just reinforced that. And it's a good reminder for us folks in management and leadership that we have an obligation to not try to just create and mold people in our image, but actually to fuel the fire for people to lean in and play to their strengths and always be them and their their authentic selves. 
Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. Even on this show, like I try and find my voice and I'm the world's biggest podcast fan. So I listen to Tim Ferriss and how I built this. And there's so many podcasts that I listen to. It's a very fine line between taking the great from these podcasts, Mike Gamson, Dan Shapiro, and then taking bits and pieces, but still, I think, remaining unique. That's kind of hard. You mentioned energy. You're obviously really high energy. People say that about me. Are you compatible? Maybe a personal question, like, is your husband also high energy? Is your assistant, your EA, your business partners, are they also high energy or not? A lot of different directions I could take this one. So I am very high energy, and that generally comes up pretty early. And I, by the way, when people ask me, hey, what's your leadership style? I use this as both a strength and also area of opportunity or warning. No, I don't just try to hire high energy people, although I am sure that in our interview processes, we're all a little bit biased to people who Mm. can move at our speed and get into an easy rhythm with us. So I probably inadvertently do this. Although I have consciously tried to hire people who also offset me and maybe help slow me down a little bit and search for the reasons why we need to tread more carefully or more lightly, which I think is good balance. My husband is... He can be the most charismatic and high-energy person in a room when he turns it on. Would I say that he, in general, matches my energy all the time? No. And we definitely have worked through that in our marriage. Particularly, I've gotten some feedback on how aggressively I plan our travel itineraries and our weekends. (laughs) It's been referenced as a baton death march at times. So this has been very real feedback. And then from teams... A gentleman I worked with, David Katz, we worked really well at Intercom for a few years. And his quote was like, bring your running shoes. And so it's an area of strength and an area of opportunity. Yeah, fair. And I ask because often people conflate my high energy with being complimentary with high energy. And I actually disagree. Like I'm going through a hire on my team right now that's going to be someone that works very, very closely with me. And I did a panel at first with a bunch of people on my team in Kleiner to see what they thought. And without exception, they always chose the high energy person to be that whom is going to be the best fit to work for me. And I like those people the least, ironically, because I would bring too much. My nickname when I was a kid was Spunky. Like I, I, I have that, it all. Yeah. I have it all the way. And so I actually think complimentary to me is someone that is very even keeled, steady yeah. Eddie all the way through. So that, that's why I ask. It was maybe more of a, a selfish question. I do think that having that diversity on your team at work is really critical. I disagree with your team. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. I have more questions, turns out. There's a couple things that I've heard and read you say that I wanted to learn more about. So one was you said people tend to oversell in the interview rather than give the actual day-to-day. How do you run an interview process? When you're courting an AE, From first call to close, what does your process look like? Yeah. So I think it does look different if you're hiring an AE versus a sales manager versus a sales leader versus a super senior marketing leader. So maybe a couple of similar trends and to touch on the quote you just gave there. I think it's especially at medium stage late stage startups, which is intercommon and front or that medium to late stage post series C timeframe. I think it's really important to very authentically sell the opportunity in both intercommon and front's case. I could be very authentically passionate about the huge market opportunity, 
the business momentum, the people. But I also think it's really important to really ground people in some of the challenges, in some of the expectations of joining, whether you're an AE or AM, or you're a CSM, or you're an operations person or a senior leader, some of the challenges, and really level set folks on the type of resilience and grit that you're gonna need to be successful in that environment. And also really ground people on the day-to-day realities of working at a company that's figuring a lot of things out and doesn't have a well-oiled machine. And so I always think that the right balance is, of course, being able to articulate all the reasons someone should join, but making sure that they're joining for the right reasons and with eyes wide open. Double click on that for me. How do you ground people? Yeah. If it's a AE or, or AM joining a business at the maturation level of a front, I think really helping them understand that a lot of our systems and processes aren't perfectly ironed out. We have a lot of work to do to make sure that it's easier to close a renewal. And we have a party of one running deal desk right now. And they're going to have to go out and trailblaze a lot of our new positioning. We're still a bit of an evangelical sale. And so are people prepared to try out three to four different ways to pitch the product, to articulate the value? And also part of the expectation when you join, especially in a more senior IC role at this stage of company is really being part of building that playbook and being super collaborative and quick to share wins and losses and what's working, what's not with teammates. And I think that does look a little bit different and feel different than if you joined the well-oiled machine of LinkedIn in 2021. So I think that that is a large part of the grounding. I think especially for managers and more senior leaders, really helping them understand the expectations you would have very quickly in their role and calling out, yes, the three reasons that you're optimistic on why we're going to grow at X percent and hit Y percent of plan in calendar year 22, but also being very real on the two to three things that keep you up at night that we have to collectively figure out as a business. Why don't you think most people don't do that grounding exercise in an interview? I think most people view hiring talent as sell, 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 I think especially earlier in company journeys. And there's a stat that something like 50% of execs work out of companies. And I don't know what the exact stats are for IC sales roles, but it's generally something like 20 to 40% turnover each and every year. And so I think it takes a while for people to really figure out what they need, how to set expectations, and how to deliver the very real grounded news still in a way that frames the opportunity opportunistically. And I think that that is a bit of an art that people often miss. And I think it leads to oftentimes people getting hired under the wrong expectation set. And that's not good for the company or ultimately the individual in the long run. If there is a known quantity that is great, who are they talking to at front? What does that process look like? How long does it take to move them through that process? What level specifically? Let's say like a manager or a director. Manager or director. Yeah. So in general, they're spending time with certainly their peer set. So if we're hiring for a head of SDR, they're meeting the head of sales, they're meeting the head of marketing, the head of demand generation, the head of operations. For certain roles, director level roles, they're probably meeting some of the members of the executive team as well for assessment and and buy-in. 
And then I meet with all of the management and obviously I'm the hiring manager for a lot of the director VP level roles. And then we sometimes have team members as part of the evaluation. I'm actually personally biased against that, which goes back to my time at LinkedIn and a story I heard from Mike Ampson at one point. But what we'll often do is a more casual meet and greet lunch, which is less assess and more get to know you and hopefully get excited about the candidate that we're planning to bring in. Why are you biased against that? There's just some conflict of interest at times when you're bringing in a new manager or leader. And Mike Gamson had shared a story at LinkedIn of a time where he was really excited as the hiring manager about a candidate he was going to bring. And I think this person had good cross-functional buy-in as well. And unfortunately, the team sabotaged the candidacy. And it was like, once the team had weighed in, there was no way to still move forward. And that's the other thing is, I think it's really hard to have a fully democratic process in hiring, especially when you're hiring at the speeds we are. And so I think it's really hard if you involve the team to then go against that vote. And ultimately, it may lead you to pass up on people that would be really fantastic for the business. And ultimately, probably for those individuals if they widened their aperture. Yeah, no, I've heard that story. And I actually think the reflection that Mike had is that he didn't clearly define expectations that it's not a democratic process. And by that point, the team had already sabotaged it and he didn't clearly say, I am making the decision. You are just data points in my decision that I may or may not agree with ultimately. Okay, that's fair. One other thing that I've heard you say You ask people in interviews how they prioritize their calendar. What are you looking for? What is the right answer? And maybe reps. Let's let's just say a rep. Yeah. I do bias to folks who have high throughput. And so I am looking for people who can bring an intensity and a productivity and move pretty quickly, whether it's talking to a lot of customers or prospects and bringing in a nice productivity around revenue, or for managers and leaders, it looks different. I actually, that comment, if I recall, was really meant for, as I'm hiring in first-time managers. And the reason is, but I think it applies for AEs and and AMs and CSMs and SEs, et cetera. I think ultimately, like, time is money. I know that's an old adage and perhaps a bit cheesy, but how successful you are really comes down to, I think, in tech and revenue tech on how much you can get done with your most valuable resource time. And I think that people that are early in their career can really struggle to move at the velocity effectively. And then particularly for first-time managers or earlier stage managers, it can be a lot to manage the forecast and sort of the business management expectations and effectively manage up across and have enough time to coach, develop your team and have them feel your presence. I think the number one piece of feedback I hear for new managers is, I wish I had more of this person's time. And so I love to, to hear how people think about scaling themselves. And ultimately, at businesses that are moving and growing fast, how quickly you can scale yourself becomes, I think, such an indication of your ceiling. That's actually really insightful. I had one more question on the interviewing thing. When you have your teams do interviews, do you give them any mandate on things to interview for or not, i.e., Roger, you qualify for this characteristic, Anna, you qualify for this one, or is it you jump right in? I would say I do a combination. And when I do spread the fields and have focus areas, I try to keep them high level enough and then also make it clear that I would appreciate, expect, and welcome someone's holistic evaluation. 
So in other words, I don't like to like pigeonhole people to, hey, you're only focusing on operational excellence. I'll often say, hey, I'd love to get your take on this person's ability to grok the metrics and operational excellence and ability to forecast, et cetera. But I'm also curious on their overall leadership and culture fit and what your general take is. Thank you. That's exactly the clarification that I wanted on all of those things. When you were at Intercom, the playbook was a bottoms-up SMB motion. And going up market was something that it was hard. It was known to be difficult for this company. Great company, built a big business, and now they are going up market eventually. It's funny, your new company front probably brought you in to go up market. That is clearly something, especially when you think about the ideal customer profile and the competition that you're selling against. What do you take from your previous experience? What do you leave at the door? And what do you think about day-to-day in how you can bring something and, and leave something, I guess? Yeah. So the number one piece of critical must-have from my experience to move up market is the entire executive team needs to be aligned on that concept. And that needs to trickle down effectively to the company. And you just can't afford to have product, sales and success, marketing, finance, when you're trying to move at high speeds, you can't even have them like 10 degrees apart. And I also believe it's really critical for that executive team to come together and discuss, yes, all the things that you want to add to prioritize and focus on in the essence and vein of moving up market. You also have to be very clear on the things that you're going to leave behind or be willing to change, trade out, move away from. And so, again, this is one of the things that really excited me about joining Front is I feel like the executive team and company is very aligned very early in our journey on all the things that it's going to take to move the company at market. So a couple of those tactical examples, I think it's really critical that the majority of your product roadmap be dedicated to the most important sales blockers or areas of churn risk for your larger customers. And whether that's workflows or analytics scalability elements, et cetera, nailing those pieces is important. Part of that, as a sales and success organization, you have to bring credible data points at scale that's not just like the last big prospect you got off the phone with to really be able to feed in and influence that product roadmap. On the marketing side, you've got to evolve your brand and you've got to start to appeal to more sophisticated business buyers and probably lead with more value-based language. Your customer examples that you're showcasing have to be peer sets of your aspirational target prospects. You've got to do demand generation a little bit differently. On the sales side, you have to be up-leveling your sales organization and infusing external talent and coaching, developing, and getting the goodness out of the folks who've been at the company for a while and know the product inside and out. You've got to bring in a consistent sales methodology. You've got to start to get outbound off the ground. And then I think invest and up-level in your frontline and second-line sales leadership as well. Question on the executive alignment piece. Did you qualify for upmarket executive alignment? I'm sure you had a little bit of, I don't know what the right word is, but you were obviously very sensitive to that. What'd you do? Yeah, there were a ton of things that I pressure tested with Front because I I think anytime you're joining a new company, it's very much at, at every level a mutual evaluation. And 
So a lot of the things that Mathilde and I spent time on were really the executive level, her personal commitment, the company, product market fit, aspirations, and really vetting that move up market, including pressure testing tactically, some of the choices you can make around pricing and packaging to really facilitate what I believe is an effective move up market. So we spent a lot of time there. And of course, there were a ton of other things that I had heard positively about Front. Matilda is a leader, the overall company culture. It was really cool to have a chance to work with so many other female executives. The product, right, and the customer's loyalty to the product were all things that I wanted to verify during the process as well. But certainly that executive alignment on company strategy and commitment to move up market was where I spent a lot of my time. Matilda's just amazing, isn't she? I was listening to her on a podcast in preparation for this, and I'm like, you're amazing. It's incredible. We've been working together for 10 months and really probably more like six because Matilda was on parental leave when I actually joined the company. And then our relationship has been mostly out of the office, virtual. Now, we do live like eight blocks apart, so we've been able to get together in person. But I have learned such an incredible amount from her in those short 10 months and it's not surprising, but it is. it exceeds expectations, especially given she spent most of her career at Front, and yet she just has so much value to add, and I've just learned an incredible amount. Her vulnerability is aspirational as a leader. I think it's really cool when that tone is set from the top down, and I think uh, it builds just a really amazingly great culture in the organization. Okay, there's a couple other things that I wanted to ask you about. One... How important is sales ops in the early days of going up market? The reason I ask- So critical, but keep going. (laughs) So, Well, and the reason I ask, I should just let you answer it, is because when everything is inbound, right, then segmentation, all these other things don't really matter. You can get away with just round robining the leads for a while. And patches don't really matter in that case because- No one's really doing outbound and things are just coming inbound and it's all SMB focused. At some point, as you want to go up market, territories matter, rules of engagement matter, sales ops matters. Yeah. So I am a huge fan of investing in sales ops early and often. And one of the first most important things that I did in joining Front was bring over an incredibly strong leader of sales operations that I had the chance to work with at Intercom, a woman named Shreya, who's just added a tremendous ton. And actually, I'm doing a series of roundtables with the marketing and, and sales and success orgs right now. And they will rave about the power and the engagement uptick they have as a result of Shreya building out a team and bringing in Deal Desk. And Shreya, by the way, joined an incredible team that was already here as well. I disagree with you a bit that when you're in mostly inbound and just round robining, stuff like segmentation doesn't matter. We actually saw some nice lift, even at Intercom in the early days, by creating segmentation and having earlier stage reps work leads from smaller companies and having more senior reps work some of the more strategic, complex, sophisticated deals, albeit even that those that had come in high intent inbound. And we also implemented Hunter Farmer, so A-E-A-M-R-M early, and that had some significant lift on our win rates and our R. I might push back on you a little bit that those things don't matter. I think even in an inbound machine, you start to get some mid-market enterprise companies that are in the early adopter, very innovative space that come in, even if it's just a segment of that company or a team within that company, 
that will push the envelope on how you structure deals and require certain sophistication of legal review and yeah, deal structure, et cetera. So again, I, I think you can't go wrong investing in sales operations early. And then to your point, sales operations importance is only enhanced as you start going outbound and get into more complex, sophisticated go-to-market motions. What's the negative stigma around outbound? I've always had a very hard time. Why doesn't everyone do outbound? Like, why is just inbound good enough? I just don't get it. Can you explain that to me? So I started my career as an outbound SDR, and this was like back in the day before Twitter or LinkedIn, and it was just like, button seat, 7.30 a.m., make 100 dials before 10, and I still think it was one of the best jobs I did. So I've been a big fan of outbound throughout my years. I think, honestly, some of it is maybe tied up a bit egotistically, which is companies believing that the product is so good that it speaks for itself and that there's a pride in viral adoption and growth that doesn't require sleazy sales tactics of of outbound. And I agree it's not great for your company brand when you have a mass of sales folks doing very generic, obnoxious outbound. But I think outbound one done well is a huge positive. Like At the end of the day, every business believes that their product adds immense value and wants more customers and people to benefit from their solution. And ultimately, obviously, they want to grow their business and their revenue. So to me, the reticence of adding outbound as a a part of the strategy early has never really made sense or resonated. But I think it stems from a fear of bad sales tactics and maybe some ego around the product being so good, it just sells itself. Good. I agree. I'm glad we're on the same page. Where does your pride in operational excellence come from? Does that question make sense? Yeah. Absolutely. It does. And it is something that I believe is so critical to modern day sales leaders and really critical for folks who aspire to be in CRO type roles. I actually think operational excellence at the end of the day is as important as strong people leadership and may even trump like raw salesmanship at a certain scale. So early in my career, As I was building out the SDR organization at LinkedIn, I was building it with a co-manager who is actually now my husband. No kidding. No joke. Big fan of dating at the company (laughs) if you you can handle it. (laughs) Got to be willing to to deal with it if things go south. Luckily for us, it did not. So yeah, we were happily married on kid number two. But he was deemed the like Spock operational one. He's an attorney. And I was like the people leader. And I very quickly realized that I wanted to be both and that I was not happy just being dubbed the people leader. And so I worked really hard across my career to actually turn that into what I believe is a big strength of mine. And and actually, Mike Gameson had some impact on me here as well. I'll never forget a call several years ago where I was asking him for some benchmarks on things like LTV to CAC and ARR growth, et cetera, et cetera. And he quickly pointed out nicely that I really needed to brush up on my terminology and ability to really grok and master company level metrics. And his advice was like, ultimately, you wanna be an absolute peer to the CFO, not just around the leadership table, but around building a business. And you need to be an equal component to the CFO in thinking through the holistic company metrics that you're really going after and be a partner in building that business together. And so I became really motivated and inspired to brush up and learn more. And it's something I still am incredibly intellectually curious by. 
Ah, I have so many questions. I'm not going to take up all of your time this afternoon, but maybe we are due for a round two. I end all of these the same way. And thank you, by the way. I really appreciate you. Thank you. This has been fun. Yeah, of course. Question one, what does the word grit mean to you? I think of grit as this sort of combination of very focused perseverance with some optimism sprinkled in. And maybe an old adage that sort of describes grit when I just think about it is the saying, where there's a will, there's a way, right? Like gritty people are just people who like figure out how to get it done. And actually on a more personal level, I recently had this conversation with some friends. If there is one characteristic that I wanted to instill or pass down to my kids, it's grit. Because I think it is so, so important, not just in business success, but really more importantly, personal life and personal life happiness. If I could pass down two things to my future kids, it would be grit and curiosity. If someone wants to get a hold of you and they want to be along for the ride, are you hiring? And if so, how do they get a hold of you? We are absolutely hiring quite a bit in the second half of this year and into next year. We're looking for great folks always. So you can reach me at lb.harvey at frontapp.com. LB, thank you. Thank you so much, Jubin. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes with CROs from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Thanks. Talk soon.